I am Heather Briegel. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, first-line descendant Stockbridge-Munsee, and I work as a public historian and consultant. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's been a while since we've had you on this program, and you're now based locally, and as you mentioned, you're working as a freelance historian and consultant. So I'd love to talk about what that work is for you and what are some of the talks that you have been invited to give? Yeah, yeah, I am local now. I'm, I'm right here in the Hudson River Valley, which is kind of cool. Um, I think last time I spoke with you, I was still in the Midwest and and I am not there anymore. But um, yeah, so a lot of the work that I do um, revolves around uh, public history, uh, primarily indigenous history, and bringing it to the the forefront of of everyone's mindfulness, um, making sure that they understand the the history of indigenous peoples. You know, I've been invited to do talks on a number of topics, whether that's, you know, well, this is very timely, but it's November, Thanksgiving. So I've been invited to do talks on how do you decolonize Thanksgiving? You know, who were the original New Yorkers in sense of like who was living in the land? I have been invited to do talks on current and contemporary Indigenous issues such as the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, which I did at the, I've done a couple of times. Um, and the last one I did regarding that was at the Brooklyn Law School. And then also on MMIW, which is an epidemic within Indian country that, you know, not a lot of people know about outside the communities. And so we want to bring awareness to that. I've talked on boarding schools and how to create places of inclusivity. So you name it, as long as it deals with Indigenous histories, I've probably talked about it. What are the talks that you enjoy giving most? Um, The talks that I enjoy giving the most deal with policy in a historical basis. So whether that is just an overview of federal Indian policy, which I do a talk on, or um, issues, contemporary issues today that deal with policy. That's what I absolutely love. When I was finished with my graduate school program, I had toyed around with the idea of actually going to law school um, because I just love policy so much. And the intricacies of federal Indian policy are interesting to delve into and, and try to understand because it's it's so different than any other type of law. Well, um, I did not go to law school, but um, my love of policy never wavered. And so I really enjoy talking about that, but from historical perspective. So how did a policy come to be? Or for example, of the Indian Child Welfare Act, how did ICWA become a policy that was needed to protect indigenous children? So then that leads into other topics that are in Indigenous history that combine my love of history and my love of policy all into one. So I kind of like talking about anything from a historical perspective because I feel like you have to have that historical basis in order to understand a topic. We could spend a couple segments just on talking about the policies that have to do with uh, reservations. What are some of the basic things to understand about the history of there is um, sovereignty over these lands, but it also creates these restrictions and lack of resources? 
What are some of the basic things we should know about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that people are completely surprised about when they hear me talk and when I talk about land or reservations or anything like that, people are primarily surprised to learn that indigenous tribes, native nations, however you want to classify them, don't actually own the reservation land that they're on. Um, it's the, the, the deed, the title to that land is held in trust by the federal government. And people are, their minds are just blown when they, when they hear that because you think, oh, you have reservation land. Oh, you must own it. No, we don't own it um, at all. And makes it very um, easy for the federal government at any time, you know, to take it away if they wanted to. But this, the, the idea that the deeds or titles of the land are held in trust by the federal government comes from a time period where the federal government didn't deem indigenous peoples, native peoples as competent enough to handle their own affairs. So if we weren't competent enough to quote, handle our own affairs, I'm assuming they mean, you know, Eurocentric kind of affairs, then we weren't competent enough to hold the deeds or titles to the land that we were on. So that's just, it's just a really interesting concept. So people are always like, that's just such a concept that people just, they're just mind blown by it. And they're like, so you don't own the land, so, but you live on it. So what happens when you, if you pass away, like, do you get to pass it to your children? No, it, it reverts back to the tribe. And I mean, sometimes it can, depending on tribal land policies, sometimes it can be, you know, you can pass it, pass it down to a next of kin, but nobody actually owns it. So I think out of anything, that's probably the thing that people, such a misconception about the most is that we own that land and we don't own it. Is there linkage between the murdered and missing indigenous women and the investigations that are taking place where when it if it takes place on sovereign land, these lands that are reservations that they aren't investigated properly? Yeah, yeah. So I think you're hinting at are there issues within jurisdiction? Thank you. Of yeah, <laughs> of who can investigate these crimes. And yeah, absolutely. Um well, I don't even know where to start on answering that question because, yes, there are um, issues within criminal jurisdiction when it comes to investigating crimes of missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, whether they happen on tribal lands, non-tribal lands. Is your state a public law 280 state? Is it not a public law 280 state? Do does the BIA Bureau of Indian Affairs have jurisdiction over it? Does the FBI have jurisdiction over it? And what's the role of tribal police? So there is so much that goes into trying to figure out who can investigate a crime before a crime's even investigated. So once that's figured out, which can be quite difficult to figure out, um, there's you know, time goes by and leads, you know, crim leads in criminal investigations um, become smaller and uh, perpetrators can get away. Um, and there's also this, this, it's not a concept, it's an actual thing. Some of it's changing now with, um, you know, policies that are being passed, like, for example, um, 
under the Violence Against Women Act. Some things have changed, but if a non-Native perpetrator or person commits a crime on uh, reservation land, Indigenous land, the tribal court system doesn't have jurisdiction over them. And so it gives this idea that tribal lands are just places that you can go to commit these crimes and you can get away with it because the tribal police don't have jurisdiction over you. So you can commit a crime on tribal land, leave tribal land, and by the time the crime gets investigated, you're already long gone. So yes, there is this um, complicated relationship between tribal criminal justice and federal criminal justice on who can investigate said crimes and bring people to justice for these. I think it's important here to note that even though it's only recently been gaining some more attention, this uh, epidemic of murder and missing Indigenous women, it's been since colonization this has been happening, and it's been a long-time yes. issue. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, thank you so much, Heather Briegel, for joining us. What is one thing that you'd really love listeners to understand around the work that you're doing or around some of the issues that you talk about? First and foremost, Indigenous people are still here. Uh, we might not be in the numbers that we once were prior to colonization starting, but we're still here. And we still have histories um, that are rich and vibrant and stories that we want to share and issues that we want to talk about. And, you know, you, you can educate yourself on our histories and be open to learning something new. And so I really just want people, when they see, you know, uh, programs happening by Indigenous artists, speakers, scholars, what have you, go to them, learn, because you're going to learn about a side of history that you didn't know before. And, you know, support Indigenous-led causes, support Indigenous-owned businesses, like we're getting ready to do holiday shopping, you know, support those businesses, because when you do that, you're supporting culture and tradition and language continuously happening. And that's, I think, uh, more important than anything in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you.